0: Hi, in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon, welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground of mortality, because after all, we are all in this together. Today's reading is edited and adapted from the writing of Maya Angelou, When Great Trees Fall. When great trees fall, rocks on distant hills shudder. Lions hunker down in tall grasses, and even elephants lumber after safety. When great trees fall in forests, small things recoil into silence. Their senses eroded beyond fear. When great souls die, the air around us becomes light, rare, sterile. We breathe briefly. Our eyes briefly see with a hurtful clarity. Our memory, suddenly sharpened, examines, gnaws on words unsaid, promise walks never taken. Great souls die, and our reality, bound to them, takes leave of us. Our souls, dependent upon their nurture, now shrink, wizened. Our minds, formed and informed by the radiance fall away. We are not so much maddened as reduced to the utterable ignorance of the dark, cold waves with a kind of soothing electric vibration. Our senses, restored, never to be the same, whisper to us, they existed. We can be better, for they existed. My guest today is Marianne Pope, the author of A Widow's Awakening, a fictional account based on the true story of her struggle to come to terms with the death of her police officer husband who died in the line of duty. Marianne, hi there. I know you're probably talking to me from a house full of half unpacked boxes. Is that so?
1: (laughs) Yes, indeed, Elizabeth. (laughs) That's exactly right.
0: (laughs) So Marianne's the middle of moving. So you are now you are on Vancouver Island. Is that correct?
1: That's correct, yes. Okay.
0: Do you have a view of uh, water or anything?
1: Nope. I've got a really cute little garden view, and then I'm about a five-minute drive to the ocean.
0: Oh, so you said a I'm boat. Happy. I love it. A boat. That's fun. <laughs> <laughs> My Canadian sister over there, I love it. So your, pa- your story, it's engaging, it's powerful, it's heart-wrenching. Your book really contains this honest look at the first year of a widow's grief, and it really captures that immense difficulty of learning how to accept the unacceptable while you also transformed your loss into a lot of positive change. You definitely learned that everything can change in an instant, can't it?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So Marianne's story starts with the fact that her husband and her were both 32 years old. They were on their very last trip together looking at the dam and Hoover Dam and going into Las Vegas and going on to California for a wedding. And in a very short while back, they went back to their normal lives. And her husband, John, who works for the police in Canada, unfortunately, um, had a work mishap and an accident, and that caused um, the death. Do you want to just kind of start us with a little bit of maybe getting that phone call and how everything moved forward for you?
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. So what happened was, um, John was a police officer with the Calgary Police Service, and I was actually a civilian with the same police service. So We both come back from holidays and we'd had a couple of days at home just hanging out with our dog and kind of getting ready to go back to our shift work so he started back on the thursday night at nine o'clock at night and then on the friday morning this was september 20 the end of september in 2000 um i started back at 7 a.m so he went to work at 9 p.m and of course i wouldn't have heard from or anything so i woke up and i went to work to start at 7 a.m that morning and it kind of this is how it all went down, and, and I'll talk about it in a moment of how it was a blessing. But I actually went to work, and that's normally not how it would unfold in a line of duty death. Yes. But the police service decided to do it a little bit different way because I was a civilian. So I went to work, and I went to work in records, and I took police um, instant reports from police officers um, over the phone. I worked in records; that was my job. So I got there at 7 a.m., and my supervisor said, "Marianne, can I see you in my office, please?" So. I kind of thought, oh, that's weird. I thought maybe I made a mistake um on a report before I went on holiday. So I went in the office, and she closes the door, which, of course, we all know is never a really good sign. So she looks at me, and she says, John's fallen. And I'm like, to be honest, my first thought was like, oh, gosh, she must have just broke his arm or broke his leg. And the kind of the thought went in one ear and out the other. And I was just like, yeah, but about that report, that that's what I was kind of thinking. And she looks at me like, Kind of funny. Eh? And then she says, you need to call his inspector. And she hands me a cell, the, the, the phone and, and the, cell, the uh, uh, inspector's phone number. So I sit down the desk and I'm calling the inspector. And that's when it clicked in my little pea brain, right? My head. I mean, it takes a while for our brains to catch up, but something big is happening. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, John. Oh, John. John's hurt himself. Like, like that's kind of how long it took for me. So then John's inspector said, when, I, when he answered the phone, he says, yes, Marianne, he says, are you with your supervisor? I said, yes. And he says, okay, well, John has fallen and hit his head. And that's the moment that I knew, oh, my goodness, something big is happening. Cause we all know a head injury is not a good thing. He says, we're going to come pick you up. Um, and take you to the hospital to see him. So I hung up, and my supervisor walked me out into the alley. And that's when I noticed, like, walking past all my co-workers that everyone was, like, not looking at me, and it was really quiet, right? And it shouldn't be quiet because it's shift change. It should be really busy and yak, and everyone's finishing up their calls from the night they're getting ready to go home. The new workers are coming in for the day shift, such as myself, and it was dead quiet. And, of course, in hindsight, what had happened, of course, was that when an officer... um, you know is injured or it looks like he's going to be dying in the line of duty and it's this injury serious injury. I mean everybody knows right it's all over the police radio and stuff, so all my colleagues who were already there knew that something big was going on, so I was kind of like brought up to speed a little bit later, so anyways, I went out to the alley and then John's inspector and his sergeant picked me up and took me to the hospital and then they uh, I sat in the hospital for a little bit, and then I saw John so that's how. I learned about the first part of his fall, not that he was going to die, but that he was in a serious injury. And, of course, just to finish the story, or this part of the story, is that normally what would happen, line of duty death, is that the police would come to your home and have the knock on the door. And when I do my presentations and when I'm interviewed, I always like to say, you know what, I am really glad I never got that knock on the door, because when you get that knock on the door, you forever associate your front door with the worst news of your life. So... I'm kind of glad I got it at work, and I never did go back to my job. So I think, well, if the worst news was coming my way, at least I didn't have to get it at home.
0: Yeah, it's, it's sort of like you dodge that part of the reality.
1: Yeah, yeah, tiny, tiny little blessing, but you know, you got to look for the good in, in amidst huge tragedy like that. And there, there were some blessings right off the bat. And I, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about those as the interview goes on.
0: You know, I. I met Marianne over Twitter. We ended up liking some of the same things, and I really enjoyed her posts, and she enjoyed mine. And something about you that I always thought was so great is you're so sunshiny. And I saw right away that you were a widow, and then I learned about your book and read your book and thought, oh my gosh, there's this. You have this amazing capacity for love and your ability to just sort of... I wouldn't say move through it because obviously you went through all of the motions. Uh, When you were in the hospital, you had, in the book, you mention your minute by minute details of how everything almost was in slow motion and how you catalog all that. I'm not sure I would be able to have the fortitude to not even go with it the first time of what happened, but the fact that you could, painfully and painlessly either one step by step write all of this out in your book so we could really see what happens with people coming to visit and the news unfolding for you and then you had his parents there and going through all of that did it feel slow motion to you while you were living through that yes
1: it it did um there's a few points to that question that i'll answer so yes it felt like in slow motion And it also felt like I was in a heightened state of awareness. So I felt that I knew it was the oddest experience. First of all, it felt like um, this little voice. When I found out John had fallen and I went to the hospital, it was like this little voice just really faintly said, and let the games begin. It It was the weirdest sense of something deep, deep in my soul, nothing conscious, something deep that I always knew was going to happen suddenly bubbled to the surface, and I'm like, oh, and here we go. So that partly explains why I was paying such a close attention. It was the strangest experience. And then the other part of it is, too, is that I when when I say I had a heightened sense of awareness, I found everyone's drama, and, and I say that rudely because it's not. It was normal, healthy outpouring of grief by a lot of people but i saw it as drama which is really a weird thing to say because here i am this young widow and i just felt like screaming okay that's enough now everybody we have to focus we have to pay attention to what's going on john is dying of a brain injury he's got to adornate his organs we can't be knocking tubes out of place i mean i didn't say that but that's what i was thinking it's like everyone else seemed to me to be like eight steps behind me it was the strangest strangest experience the whole day Now, that's more at the beginning of the day, and then as the day unfolded, and I sat with John hour after hour, and all those people came in, I stopped greeting them, I stopped hugging them, I just started to ignore everyone and totally focused on being with John and holding his hand as he passed away, and they prepared his body for organ donation, right? So I had 17 hours with him in the hospital. So I focused more and more on him and on us and saying goodbye and telling what I had to and literally knowing on some deep level that I am taking his soul, you know, as close as I could to the other side. It, 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 was, it was just the most horrifically painful day, but it was also the most beautiful day uh, in a really, really heart-wrenchingly sad way. And then to the third part, um, Elizabeth, that I'd like to mention, in terms of how the heck I was able to document it moment by moment like that, there was two reasons. <laughs> One is John and I had a fight the night before about me not you know, taking my writing seriously, I can talk about that a little later, but basically I didn't know then that I would be writing about this, but something deep inside me said, you better pay attention. So two weeks after his death, if you can imagine, I woke up one morning and I started writing what had happened. I didn't really get into the emotions as much right off the bat because it was just way too raw, but I could document the what and the how, like w- what happened and when, when, uh, when the nurse came in, what she said, what the doctor said, what that doctor said, what this person said, who pushed their baby stroller and all that kind of stuff was still fresh and weirdly vivid in my memory. So I wrote a lot of that down within the first like month, which is extraordinary. And then I know it was a bit odd because when my sister-in-law read um, the book, she was one of my main caregivers. Like it was my brother, Doug and my sister-in-law, Tracy, they were the ones that were kind of assigned to be my little uh, like (laughs) caregiver. Like literally they stayed in my house, they fed me They made sure I woke up. They made sure I got to all the appointments. I was because I was a complete basket case. So my sister-in-law, Tracy, read the book, and she looks at me, and she's like, how did you do this, Marianne? How did you get that bang on? She says, because I watched the entire thing. Like, you experienced it. I watched it. And she says, you got every detail right. She says, that is weird. And I think the reason was is because I started writing it so soon after John's death.
0: And you were there, even though you maybe subconsciously were focused on him, you all of that going on, it's your story. This is the one time ever you're going to go through this. So it's not surprising. Yeah. A lot of that really didn't escape you, even though you weren't addressing it in the moment.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, some of those details are so, so vivid. Like, you know, like, for example, the moment when um, I went the day after to see John in, in the morgue, and I, you know, I saw him, and he had his little sheet pulled up, right, and it's just his head, and I remember thinking should I pull back the sheet to see the incision where his heart was removed? And and I remember saying, no, I, I don't want any more traumatic things in my head that's enough Marianne you know his heart is gone you don't need to see that incision and I didn't do that so so it just that sort of just speaks to oh yeah there was enough that is is like burned into my memory that I will never forget so yeah you're right there's no there's it's it's no surprise I didn't get I I didn't miss much of that detail because it was so so incredibly traumatic to me personally
0: My guest today is Marianne Pope, the author of A Widow's Awakening. She's talking about her story of right after her husband suffered a brain injury from working in the Calgary police. Here she is in the hospital. She's having to go back to her life. I can really clearly feel in your writing style how your grieving mind struggles with focus during the early days and the months. What did it look like to dive into the ocean of pain and confusion to try to make sense of this enormous loss for you?
1: Um, it was horrible. <laughs> I don't think that's a big surprise. <laughs> Plain the and simple. Yes. It, was, it was awful. I, I, I hated every minute of it. Here I'd been complaining all these years to John how much I wanted to be a writer and I was like, oh, I don't have the money. I have to work at a full-time job. I don't have the time. And he's like, Marianne, make the time. <laughs> if it's a priority, you make the time. You put your time into the ring. So here I am whinging away. So finally, oh, what happens? <laughs> I lose the man I love the most, my soulmate, and I get like a guaranteed paycheck from the Calgary Police Service because he died in the line of duty. So in Canada, that's what we're entitled to. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I am so mad at myself. There's so much guilt that now I have the time and the money to write, but I have to write about the worst experience and losing the person I love the most. It was awful. I hated every minute of it. People always ask me, well, did you find it therapeutic? Oh, no, <laughs> not in the first three three years or the first ten rewrites. I did not find it therapeutic <laughs> later, yeah. I mean, I know it was good and I got it out, but it didn't. I wasn't able to start making sense on the page until about year four, and that's because I got a professional editor to help me find the story within all that grief. Um, and interestingly, one more point I'll make is that in those first few months, my writing, even though I got the documentation down, the what happened and the where and the how and stuff, the actual emotional stuff that I was writing was so weird, like total denial, like everything's going to be okay, it's all part of a better plan, John's in a happier place, and and I'm not saying that that's not true, it's just that I could not go near the real, real hurt until about after three months, because that is rim, right? So no, it was, it was, I hate it. I hated every minute of writing for about the first three to four years. (laughs) How's that for an an honest answer? (laughs) Well,
0: it makes sense because you're so honest in your book. You talk about how you probably, You know, as you went along in your relationship, you mentioned even in the last trip together, little phobials, things maybe you said or did. And you you don't come off as the perfect girlfriend, the perfect wife. You come off as a human doing your thing. And I think that's really, really important. I love all the little nuggets and all the little ideas that you put in your book that you were really not only paying attention to what was going on, but all of the nuance and the significant. I really love how you talk about St. Michael and how Michael, uh, that saint fit into the story of John.
1: Oh yes, absolutely. Um okay, so in in the Catholic faith, uh the Catholic religion, St. Michael's Day is September 29th and St. Michael is an archangel, and Saint Michael is also uh, the patron saint of police officers. Now, in the Greek Orthodox faith, John was Greek Orthodox. He uh, Saint Michael's Day is actually November fourth, which is the forty-day anniversary, uh, which was the forty it is the forty-day anniversary of John's death because he died on September 29th. Um, and in the for the Greeks, that's hugely important because that's the day that your soul goes to heaven, and Saint Michael takes the soul and shows all the good and bad deeds, and then takes you to God to see what work you're. Going to do in heaven, so that's a little bit of the Christian background. So my point is, either way, whether it's the Christ, the, the Catholic or the Greek Orthodox, John was quite well covered being on September 29th Now, um, another linkage for Saint Michael being the patron saint of police officers. That in, what stemmed from that in Canada, interestingly, not the states. I'll talk about that in a moment, but in Canada. What we do is there's a national um, memorial, like a a day to honor fallen officers, police officers, and peace officers. And they always put that on the last Sunday of September, which is linked to St. Michael's Day, of course. Now, in the... they also have the memorial day to honour fallen officers, police officers, and peace officers, but that is not um, until May. And that actually started in the 60s for you guys, I think. So um, it's interesting. There's a bit of a a Christian uh, linkage in Canada, but not in the States. From what I can gather anyways, although I was just reading recently about that in the States. And, of course, that wasn't my area of concern because John was a a Canadian police officer. So, um, yeah, every year at the end of September, sometimes right on the anniversary of John's death, is the actual day in Canada that... um, Um, of fallen police officers are remembered, which is, I think, rather uncanny that John goes and dies on the day that he was supposed to be protected.
0: Well, there's a greater plan. It all turned out exactly how it was, I guess, ordained to happen. Yeah, that's really interesting, and I'm glad you paid attention to that. Something listeners probably should know here is the accident that your husband suffered was because of a faulty safety issue. And because of this, there's a memorial fund set up for him. So if you can take us through a little bit of that and what that journey looked like for you to set all that up.
1: Absolutely. All right. Well, I'll first just explain quickly about exactly what happened to John so I can sort of paint that picture, and then it makes more sense why we're doing the work that we're doing through the John Petropolis Memorial Fund. So what happened was John went into a warehouse, There was a a call came in and they thought it was a break and enter in progress. So John went into the warehouse with uh, the canine officer. So the canine officer obviously stays on the ground level with the dog, the canine dog, and he directed John to go up this ladder to the mezzanine level. It was like another upper level. So John goes up looking for an intruder because they're thinking that there is someone in the building. There's the alarm going off. It's dark. John's got his flashlight. So he gets to the top of this ladder. And he's, like, he's surrounded by all these, you know, storage boxes. They would put things up there and uh, whatever else was up there. And he was standing on what um, what looked to be about, I think, about a five-foot-by-five-foot five safe surface. So he's standing there, and he takes a step. And weirdly enough, he takes a step from a safe surface to what looks like a safe surface because, surface, of course, there's been all the... Um, investigation, police, and occupational health and safety, obviously, since his death. It was was very, very well investigated. So he took this step from this safe surface right onto what looked like a safe surface, but it wasn't. It was the top of a false ceiling, but there was no safety railing in place to warn him or anyone else of danger. So he took the step, and of course, he collapses like a sack of potatoes, falls right through that false ceiling, and right into the lunchroom below. And unbelievably, some, someone had left a chair in the lunchroom, in the middle of the lunchroom. So that meant that his body kind of twisted in, in the back of his calf, hit the upper part of the chair, and that projected the back of his head down and hit the concrete at such a force and angle that he immediately stopped breathing I mean, he had suffered a massive brain injury right from the get-go and i should say too that fall was only nine feet like that's how fast this can happen oh, wow. so the canine officer out of the corner of his eye it was very dark but he could see john's shadow, like the shadow john's falling right so he races in there with dogs secures the dog the dog's going bananas barking and the canine officer drops to the ground and totally um starts um, CPR and gets John breathing in again, which which was amazing, right, because then other police officers took over and then the paramedics came and got John to the hospital. And because of that, that meant that John could be on life support and that's why we could um, go with the organ donation. So just to finish up with the um, actual incident and how John um, died, is that obviously that's how he fell in his head, so the main culprit there, the main, number one thing that went wrong from a workplace safety perspective was that there was no safety railing in place to warn him or anyone else of the danger. And then, of course, Occupational Health and Safety did the investigation, and, yeah, there should have been um, a railing there by law. So that that was huge. Uh, you know, it was a real tragedy. It was a very, very easily preventable death. Um, yeah, so what what we did, and I say we collectively, it's a we now, but it wasn't we at the beginning. <laughs> it was um, several of John's police Classmates started the John Petropolis Memorial Fund. So this is what often happens, as I'm sure you know, in the states, is that when an officer or a firefighter or some so a first responder dies in the line of duty, they often will raise money right off the bat. Um, you know, either for a scholarship for um, the children or for whatever they want. Um, John, they didn't have kids, so what what these uh, police officers did is they made this little memorial pin. It has John's regimental on it, number three one two five, and they sold it for police to police officers for court time and to other first responders um, all over North America and family and friends and stuff. So by the time of John's funeral, if you can imagine, like four days later, they'd raised uh, 12000 dollars actually, and they said to me. Marianne, when you're in some semblance of um, emotional and mental shape, like, you're okay. Do you want to be involved with how we use this money? And I said, oh, yeah, you betcha. So over that first year, we would go for coffee and, and lunch and beer and stuff. And it was weird, right, because these are John's buddies from recruit class. They're the ones he graduated with. Like, his th- there was three main ones. And they would always go for lunch. And then he's gone, and now I'm going for lunch with these guys. And we're trying to figure out what to do with the memorial fund money. And Al oh, was just... It was just such a huge transition in my life, but, you know, looking back, it it just all unfolded quite amazingly. So what we decided to do over that first year is to use the money to address the issue that led to John's death, and that is an unsafe workplace. So in a nutshell, the Memorial Fund is now a charity, still going strong almost 20 years later, and we raise public awareness about why and how people can make their workplace and the roads safer for emergency responders such as police, fire, EMS, tow truck drivers, et cetera. So that's what we do, and we've done eight public service announcements that have aired on TV uh, two or three million times, Um, we've got a ten-minute safety video that's being shown um, like all sorts of different conferences and classrooms, we've got different speakers out there doing uh, safety presentations, and it's pretty powerful, I've done a lot of safety presentations over the years, and it's incredible, because the number one thing people say to me, I mean, I know I'm John's widow, but to me or any of our speakers is like, wow, I never thought of workplace safety from the perspective of a first responder who wouldn't be familiar with the hazards that we know are in our workplace. So, you know, that's exactly what happened where John died. It was like, well, they knew it was was not safe to walk there. But, you know, the police were in there investigating for a a break and enter, and he didn't know that it was unsafe because there was no safety railing. And I should just finish up this little part of the story by saying there was no intruder in the building. It was a false alarm. So that was a real slap in the face to me don died protecting a, uh, a premise you know building that didn't need protecting so we uh we tried to channel all that frustration and hurt and anger and it was myself and you know the police officers and a lot of people and just said look let's try and make some positive change come from this and raise awareness about this segment of workplace safety
0: That's really overwhelming. I can see how that's just such a blow to think this is just an unneeded accident. And the fact you're so generous, 20% of the proceeds of the sale of your book go to this memorial fund. That's really oh, something. Well, that was
1: that was my oh, that was the that was the self-published version. This novel that that was released because um, the publisher, BHC Press, picked it up in 2018. So the version, the beautiful, the the one with the beautiful cover, mm-hmm. um, with, you know, with the woman in the and the the uh, the skirt that's kind of blowing in the wind. That's the actual novel. That's the one that's out there now. That 100% goes to. Um, the memorial fund. So that's of the first 1,000 copies sold. So, yeah, so no, that's why it's like, yeah, 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 buy the book, read it. It's a great story, but it also helps support our safety
0: messages. Uh, I'm blown away at 20% that I have incorrect. 100%? <laughs> that's really, 100%. I just, I, I, wow. That's, that's really oh, that's something. That's the
1: first thousand. That's only the first thousand copies. So then, after that, my company gets the money. <laughs> that's. So, but we're not at a thousand. We sold two thousand of the self-published, and then this uh, this novel, the the one that's been published by the actual proper publisher, um, we're not at a thousand yet. So. Well, let's so get
0: done. going with that and sell them. They yes, can find exactly. you. Your publishing company is Pink Gazelle Productions. Where did that name come from?
1: Yeah, sorry, that's my that's my company. The actual publisher of the book is BHC Press. Mm-hmm. Um, but, sorry, yeah, my company is Pink Gazelle Productions. I did the first the first book. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of printer printed. But so my company name, Pink Gazelle, um, okay, this is what happened. So in my book, I kind of touched on this. So at about uh, seven months, eight months after John's death, I had a friend say, hey, do you want to go to Spain? And I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll go to Spain. And so I met her in Spain, and I was still a complete nutter basket case because I kind of didn't realize that grief was going to take a little while. (laughs) So I went, and I was making really stupid decisions, and one thing led to another, and I ended up in the Sahara Desert in June. Now, if anyone has been to the Sahara Desert in June, it's a little hot as in, like, 50 you know, degrees Celsius. I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit, but it's, it's extremely hot. And, like, literally, I was passing out in the desert and stuff. So I kind of had a bad incident with um, a guide, actually, uh, who took us out there. But before I get to that, I should say in Morocco... Um, when my friend and I were walking down the street, we had all these men and women actually calling out and saying, bonjour, gazelle, you know, it's French speaking, bonjour, gazelle, bonjour, gazelle. And it's basically gazelle is a term of endearment for Western woman. So we thought that was kind of cute. So we took to calling each other, hey, gazelle, bonjour, gazelle. And we were wearing our little jellabas and stuff. And anyways, we went to the desert, and I had this horrible experience. Um, actually, nope, there's one part of the story I should, I should back up and say. So one night, my friend and I were hanging out in our whatever hotel room in Marrakechshire wherever we were, and we were talking about how gazelle is such a good name for a woman, right? And so we kind of made a joke and said, yeah, I want to be a pink gazelle. Like, I felt that I was John's pink gazelle. I was the apple of his eye. I was his soulmate. I was the one for him. And likewise, he was my blue antelope, and he was my mate, and he was the man for me. And my friend sort of wistfully said gee, I hope I find a blue antelope someday. And I just said, yeah, I hope I find another blue antelope someday. So that's kind of where we left the conversation. And then I went to the Sahara Desert and had this horrible experience with this guide, and the massage went too far. And it was really interesting because we'll talk about this a little bit in a moment too, but I found my voice because his hands went to little places they shouldn't be going in a massage. And I was really sick and very, very dehydrated, and I found my voice, and I said, get out. And I looked him in the eye, and he just looked at me, and he laughed, and that was it. And it was weird, but it took me like eight months, but I found my voice again. And I made this, this decision, you know what, I'm not going to find another guy, and it doesn't matter whether I do or not. The point is, I have to learn how to see myself as a pink gazelle. I have to learn to love myself the way that John loves me. And that was pretty big, and it's taken a while, boy. <laughs> you know, to figure that out. So when I got back to Canada, Uh, I learned how to say no. I said no to a lot of things and started to kind of smarten up and get back on track and, you know, take my writing seriously, work hard with the Memorial Fund, you know, get my poop together, basically, and start moving forward with my life because I could only wallow and kind of just be victim for so long. And then I named my company Pinkazelle Productions. I thought that's really good. So it's a really strong message to women. It's like with a guy, without a guy, with another woman, without a woman, whatever, (laughs) whatever you're looking for, you've got to be able to provide it for yourself first. And that's been a huge lesson. And, you know, one of your other questions, Elizabeth, to me was, have I learned to be happy on my own? And uh, I would say, yeah, but I did it kicking and screaming because there was nothing more that I wanted. Uh, there was, I, I so wanted to fall in love again after John died because I wanted to feel happy again. And I realized I had to figure out how to do that. And that was my journey. I'm not saying that's everybody's journey. Because a lot of people I find, because I know a lot of widows, obviously, <laughs> with a book like this going out, I've met a lot. A lot of women are saying to me, Marianne, I don't want to be alone. I'm like, that's okay, that's your journey, right? We're all doing our own thing here. But for me, I learned pretty quick that one of my biggest life lessons is to learn how to be happy on my own. I'm not going to say it's going to be forever. I would love to have a special someone, but that was a big one for
0: me. Oh my pink gazelle, I sure hope you find your blue antelope sooner than later and when the time <laughs> is meant to be. You've exactly. been listening <laughs> You've been listening to KKPZ 1330 AM The Truth. Thank you so very much to my guest, Marianne Pope, the author of A Widow's Awakening. Twenty percent of the proceeds go to a wonderful memorial fund. And until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other.